Hello, and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast. Since the start of the year, global equity markets have risen across the board. At the end of February, the S&P 500 was up 5%, the NASDAQ up 12%, the DAX up 9%, and the FTSE 100 has smashed through the 8,000-point barrier and is sitting up 4%. But all this is against a backdrop of inflation, which, although it has started to cool off by a few percentage points, is still in or near double digits in the US and UK. There is also the uncertainty over the trajectory of the war in Ukraine and the potential of a recession in Western economies. So what is going on? Are the markets over-egging the pudding or is the outlook for the next year pretty rosy? I'm Sally Hickey, Chief Reporter at FT Advisor, and with us this week to decode the confusing signs are Ed Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Rathbone's Investment Management, and Richard Claude, a portfolio manager at Janice Henderson. Hello, Sally. Hi, Sally. Hello, both, and thank you for joining us. So to start uh, with you, Richard, what are the big themes that are driving this extraordinary rally? Well, Sally, as you said, there's plenty to worry about, but I think you, when, we, when we think about the market, you've got to remember it is a forward discounter. So there were obviously expectations that inflation was surging. Interest rates would have to go up to, to contain that in, in many parts of, of the world. And what the market had already discounted was you know, very high inflation levels and then interest rates having to go up a lot already. And it was more the debate around where those sort of peak expectations for rates would be. And, and as soon as we got a little bit of respite in terms of the inflation data, uh, then the market get a little bit more um, sort of sanguine and comfortable with where those peak interest rate expectations could come. So that was sort of one one part of it. And then the other part was the fact that, you know, we would have this economic slowdown. But with the combination of a China reopening and some slightly sort of more resilient sort of data coming out of particularly the, the US, there could be this sort of softer landing uh, narrative as, as well. So it's the, the, the playing out of those sort of macroeconomic um, sort, of, uh, sort of assumptions as well as, you know, very extreme positioning that was very defensive coming into this year, which has got to caught people. Uh, off guard. And and on that point, Ed, were you have you been surprised at this sort of uh, rally that's happened across almost every Western uh, economic uh, Western equity market? Um, yes, we have been. We think this is a bear market rally and one to fade. Um, so continued U.S. growth all the way through this year is not our interpretation of the leading economic indicators um, and a sharp uh, spike in inflation, a rapid tightening of interest rates, a very sharp tightening of bank lending standards, together have uh, invariably seen a hard landing in the past. We think that's the likely uh, scenario uh, again today. And our broader quantitative indicators of recession risk have never signaled such a high probability of recession without one um, ensuing. And if that's our base case, then it's also sort of pertinent to think that since World War II, the, uh, the bear market trough has never occurred before the start of a US uh, recession. Um, and we don't think uh, that growth in China is likely to be strong enough to offset weakness uh, elsewhere. The spillovers from a recovery in China concentrated on consumer services are likely to be uh, relatively uh, uh, small. So because we've got recession as our base case, and we're also a little more hawkish on inflation than the market and therefore rates, 
um, you know, we think a, a bear market trough is, is perhaps still to come. So uh, staying with you, Ed, why have the markets got it wrong in your view? Well, I mean, markets aren't, uh, aren't perfect discounters. Um, otherwise, Richard and I probably wouldn't have a job. Um, so I think they have uh, misinterpreted um, a couple of key things uh, to do with the US economy. So one argument you often hear about why the US is going to avert a recession centers on the labor market. It's just so strong. That's going to deliver the uh, the income necessary for the consumer to, to pull us out of all this. Well, empirically, that's a bit dubious because uh, on the eve of a recession, labor markets are always strong. And you know, the unemployment rates, for example, we, we tend to think of as a, as a lagging uh, indicator um, and coincident at best, but, but often, often it lags. Um, another reason why people are perhaps more optimistic than us is to do with the level of excess staving still in the economy, having been built up during the pandemic. A lot of that has been spent over the last year. Otherwise, growth would have been weak already. Um, the, the, there is an argument that that could continue to be spent down and consumer spending averts a, a, a hard landing, um, which um, I think is, is a definite source of upside risk that, that we must acknowledge. But again, it is very rare for when you see such sharp, or actually not just rare, but we've never observed a period before where you've had uh, the pro- general precursors to a recession, such as very sharp increases in rates, tightening of lending standards, the most sensitive sectors of the economy faltering already, like the housing uh, and construction sectors. It's unheard of for then the US consumer to continue to uh, dissave into that environment. We, we're, we're skeptical that that will avert uh, a recession. Sure. So, uh, Richard, given your expertise in in, in the tech stock uh, market, um, what uh, given that tech, that sort of tech and I know that the growth term is is sort of debated as being potentially not pretty accurate, but the sort of fan companies, given they've done so well in the past decade, do you think there is cause for optimism in the short and medium term for tech stocks? Well, it might surprise you to, to hear that while I am sort of optimistic for, for the technology sector, I'd actually agree with a, a lot of what uh, Ed just, just said, that, you know, we, we are going to have a recession. The only debate is quite how sort of hard it, uh, that landing is. Um, but when, you know, we think about that from a technology point of view, you know, we think that there's going to be a huge scarcity of growth because we're seeing this huge kind of economic um, slowdown. And so, you know, when you're going to look for growth in, in your portfolio and, and you want earnings and cash flow to grow, and hopefully the stocks will, will grow with those o- over time, you, you need to go to some of the growthier areas of, of, of secular growth within the market, and, and those will be sort of technology companies. Uh, and I'd also sort of say that while the work to to kind of cut expectations to more reasonable levels, you know, particularly for the wider S and P 500, is is only really just starting. I, I would argue that for many areas of of technology, where there's so many data points and so many analysts covering these stocks, a lot of that work has, has already been done. So I feel like expectations for many technology stocks would be a lot lower, and those cuts have been quite material. 
material. I mean, you've seen Intel guiding for its first loss in God knows how many years and cutting its dividend by, by two thirds uh, today. And you've seen some material uh, downside in expectations even for, for cloud, which was meant to be a, you know, a very strong um, sort of growth driver. But when you look forward and, and think about you know, the FANG dominating the last decade of, of the stock market, that was because they dominated the, the key sort of trends that we've seen in technology in the last decade, you know, the rise of the iPhone and mobile apps and, and the cloud uh, and those kind of FANG. And that's why the acronym was coined was because they were the key beneficiaries of those trends. And they were able to grow their earnings and cash flow so much faster than the rest of the market. And the market rewarded them for that outsized growth and made them the trillion, two trillion, three trillion dollar market cap stocks that they ended up being in many cases. Whereas we look forward, I, you know, just the, the, the law of big numbers and, and where those technology trends are going to shift to just means that it's very unlikely that those companies will demonstrate the same outsized growth potential over the next five to 10 years. And so I would expect that there will be other technology companies that demonstrate that superior growth and then will be rewarded by the market. And I'm sure we'll have some very catchy marketing acronyms coined for them too going forward. So, you know, when we think about our portfolio, we are probably at the lowest percentage we've had in, in terms of FANG exposure for, for a very long time, or in fact, probably ever since that, that acronym was coined in 2015. So given given the fact that a lot of these growth companies have now almost turned into value companies, um, on your point of, of where that growth is going to be in the next decade, what sort of within the tech sector, what kind of themes uh, or companies specifically are you quite positive on? There's a, there's a reset in, in in cloud growth this year, and that's mainly actually coming because you know companies like Amazon are actually trying to be very flexible into a slowdown, into a recession. So they're not trying to hold uh, their customers to minimum contracts, and they're saying, look, we'll, we'll offer you the flexibility on the upside and scalability when times are good, and that's one of the key advantages of the cloud. But we'll also provide you that flexibility on the way down, so that any CIO coming out of this kind of economic cycle will think, you know, I, I have to be in the cloud because I can scale up, but I can also scale down. Now that that's at the expense of growth this year, but we think that that provides a lot of, you know, sort of further penetration of the cloud, which is still fairly in, in its early stages for many years to come. And then on top of that, obviously, everything that we've, I'm sure many of your listeners would have you know, heard about ChatGPT or used ChatGPT. Of course, that's obviously built on, on cloud services, and in that case, you know, Microsoft Azure. And we think that we're in a very rapid phase of innovation in terms of you will see uh, ChatGPT-like services embedded in, in everything from, you know, Bing Search and, uh, and Microsoft Edge, but to pretty much every software application. Um, and we'll see a, a huge amount of usage from that technology uh, across many professions, which we think will sort of have huge productivity gains um, in many particularly white collar sort of work opportunities. You know, any, op- any sort of job that would like to have 100 interns helping you out on any given day, I think will be sort of very beneficial to have that sort of AI. And, and it's not particularly intelligent, but just having that sort of extra help to, to write code or to draft a legal contract or to do marketing documents or uh, to be able to, on the journalistic side, there are many opportunities there and that value will ultimately allow some disruption and further growth from technology. And then the other big area for us is anything kind of where technology is providing solutions to some of our sustainability challenges. So, you know, whether that be sort of meeting climate change targets, we need to make the world more efficient, we need to be lower carbon. Again, that could be shifting to the cloud or internet of things or smarter cities, data analytics. There are many technologies that provide the solutions to a lot of government regulation and subsidies that are going to be going into those areas, which we think will be, you know, sort of not only very attractive growth markets, but actually, unlike a lot of big tech over the last decade, be on the right side of government regulation. And interesting that you mentioned regulation. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the threat that that geopolitical tensions and regulation can could uh, prove to to be a bit of a hinder on these companies. 
Well, it's, it's a really interesting question because you know I think for, you know, there's two elements to that. One is, uh, and you've seen with um, the regulators' uh, response uh, in the UK to Microsoft trying to buy Activision, that you know basically they're telling Activision to, uh, that it has to um, get rid of Call of Duty and, and dispose of that to to allow that merger to go through, which is a an anathema to, to Microsoft. That's the core franchise of Activision, and that's generally reflective of regulators' um, sort of view of, of any big tech doing M&A over on on this side of the pond or, or in the US. And that's very different to the past where, you know, you think about WhatsApp or Instagram or, or YouTube, those are all companies acquired by big tech through the last sort of major um, sort of technology trends. And I think regulators have taken the view that that was a mistake and that they should not allow that to happen in the future. So I think regulation um, is an ongoing sort of issue for, for big tech. But, you know, the, the kind of the number one area where we're going to see it really impact these companies is their, their inability to do M&A um, and, and buy companies that will sort of give them greater exposure and a more accelerated rate to some of these newer trends. On the geopolitical side, I think, you know, we've already seen it in the internet that, you know, there, there aren't, um, you know, U.S. internet companies in, in China uh, and there are domestic champions already in China like Alibaba and Tencent and, and, and Baidu. I think you're going to see that in every other sort of part of the technology space and, and obviously semiconductors is the sort of the front and center of that um, sort of geopolitical stress and, and that brings in Taiwan too. But you're just going to see that sort of deglobalization and localization of many supply chains, including um, technology and some of the key technologies um, as well. Um, and that will create you know risks and opportunities from an investment point of view. And Ed, something we've we've mentioned a few times is China. Um, how do you think that that reopening that came as a probably a bit of a shock to most people? How do you think that's going to play out in the next year? So um, we think Chinese growth will clearly uh, accelerate after its consumer has been uh, to some extent locked down for three years. But we are a little less uh, enthusiastic about the extent to which it can accelerate compared to uh, some of our peers. Um, uh, there are pent-up savings uh, among consumers um, uh, in China, but not to the same extent uh, that uh, compared to the savings that were amassed by Western um, uh, consumers. Um, those savings are also likely to be more um, uh, or less equitably distributed than they were uh, in the West with the, with the richest uh, uh, taking a larger share of those excess pandemic savings than, um, than they did uh, in the West. And again, that will temper uh, demand. Um, moreover, there are some um, pretty profound structural and other cyclical headwinds blowing in the wrong direction for, for Chinese growth, particularly around its property market. Um, so uh, you know, Beijing is, is having another go at stimulating the sector, but really only to get those mothballed projects uh, going again. Um, uh, and we do not expect a reacceleration in, in housing starts, uh, certainly to, to the extent that it could have very positive spillovers for the rest of, of the world. You know, the excess inventory uh, of, of Chinese housing now is measured in years, not months. Um, you know, we've had a decade of misallocated capital that takes a long time to, to work its uh, way through. Um, as the meagre recovery um, in, in Europe um, 10 years ago showed. Um, there are also some profound structural 
longer term structural headwinds. Uh, we were at a, a real tipping point for um, the shrinking working age population uh, in China. Uh, we've got access of, of China to um, Western technology, which it still needs for it really trans to transition to an upper income country. Uh, and of course, the more statist attitudes of, of, of Xi could, could command a higher risk premium um, for the economy and, it, and its market. We also don't think that Chinese reopening will have a huge read across to uh, Western markets in the way that perhaps it did in 2009 slash 10 or 2016, 2017. Because in those episodes, right, Beijing primed the credit pumps, funneled money to manufacturing and construction that have much bigger spillovers to the rest of the world's growth due to the imports China needs to make and build them and the imported consumer goods that workers and entrepreneurs then go out and, and buy with their share of the profits. Today, we think that rebound of the credit impulse will be more muted. Uh, and moreover, the recovery will focus on consumer services, which have much, much less imported uh, content. So reopening delivers improved global sentiment at the margin, but we don't think it really materially alters the outlook for the US economy and therefore the general trajectory of, of the global stock market. So, Ed, given everything that that um, you and Richard have said so far, um, a lot of the conventional wisdom has been that the 60 portfolio, which, of course, did so badly last year, is, is going to rebound this year. And it was not a change in the structure. It was just one bad year. Thank you very much. What do you think of that thesis? Um, well, I might start by being really nerdy here and, and sort of talk about yeah, we, we talk about the 60-40 portfolio because rightly or wrongly, it's assumed to be broadly optimal for a medium risk uh, investor. But bond volatility relative to equity volatility um, uh, right, is, is at a 10-year high and is well above the, the, the long-run average. And the correlation between bonds and equities has also shot up. Um, and together, again, assuming that the 60-40 was broadly optimal, the median risk investor should therefore be having a, a, a lower allocation to, to bonds given that shift in, in risk. Now, because of our outlook, both bonds and equities could be in for a tough uh, time. Uh, and the 60-40 could perform quite poorly again. Although I would note that the starting point for bond yields, of course, today is much, much higher than it was uh, at the start of 2022. And so with their sensitivity to future rate rises, reduced bond performances are likely to be anything as, as bleak as last year. But nevertheless, we, we think better risk-adjusted returns will be delivered by investors looking beyond that 60-40, uh, uh, particularly into other areas of diversification. So, for example, trend-following, actively managed strategies are a particular area of interest to us uh, um, uh, at the moment. Sure. And, and Richard, what else do you think investors should be keeping in mind for the next year or so? I mean, 
personally, I'm a little bit more positive than, than Ed in, in terms of that sort of China, China reopening. I mean, I, I think you know we, we all forget quite how powerful you know it was for us to, to reopen and come out and, and, and spend um, in sort of Western markets. And I think there's again a, a slight misinterpretation of, of just you know, the, the, the lockdowns and, and zero COVID policy in China being sort of similar to what we had in the West. I mean, it was so much more draconian, um, and ultimately that's what, what made it sort of un- untenable. But you know, even if you look at say some of the the online companies or e-commerce companies, you know, like, like an Amazon that did so well in Western markets, you know, actually the, their contemporaries in China really struggled because of how draconian the, the lockdowns were that they couldn't actually deliver um, goods um, to, to people's homes. So, you know, we do think that there will be sort of a, a very strong reopening and combined with, um, you know, a major U-turn, not just on zero COVID, but also on the regulatory front uh, where, you know, uh, President Xi is just now 100% laser focused on, you know, restarting the economy, rebuilding consumer confidence. Um, you know, you are getting a very different attitude uh, from regulators to, you know, a lot of the big companies, which are, are often many of the, the internet platforms in, in China. And a combination of the two, um, as well as sort of China being uh, investable again after a lot of debate uh, around that in, in, in recent years means that, you know, you should see um, some, some stronger returns from, from that region in, in particular, because you've kind of got macro trends very much diverging from the rest of the world, regulatory trends uh, diverging uh, as well, and valuations were very low in most global equity investors were very underweight. You know, they've obviously addressed some of that, but a lot of global investors, you know, haven't. Uh, and, you know, there are already in-person major conferences and summits being planned, um, one of which I'll be attending in, in May and June uh, in China in person, you know, thousands of people flying in from various bits of the world. You know, that's how quickly we can get back to, to, to normal. So I, I do think, um, you know, sort of uh, people who are listening to this should think about, you know, the impact of that on, on China um, and then on sort of, you know, wider emerging markets uh, for for looking for potential sort of investments. And Ed, what what do you think this means uh, for investors? What kind of uh, theme should they be looking at? I'm thinking, you know, should should they be looking at kind of recession playbooks? What does that entail? Should they be defensive? All of those kind of things. What what would you advise at the moment? Yeah, so during a market uh, or an economic slowdown, regardless of whether it actually ends in a, a soft landing or a hard landing. On the on the way down, the the playbook actually tends to be the same, which is is, is pretty fortunate. Um, cyclical companies uh, underperform, defensive companies uh, outperform. We saw that last year. There's obviously been a reversal over the last three three months, but we think that uh, trade will will um, reinstate. Um, the uh, we prefer investment grade debt uh, to equities. We're overweight in investment grade credit uh, relative to um, uh, an underweight position in, in equities. Um, high quality corporate bonds tend to perform outperform more consistently as soon as central banks stop hiking, which we, we don't think we're, we're that far uh, uh, away from. They're much less sensitive to the economic cycle than equities, and so the their their proclivity to outperform is is less conditioned on on, on whether we get that hard landing uh, or not. Um, there's particular areas of value in credit in in European markets, a little less so in in the US for sure. Uh, you still have to be careful there, and of course, liquidity is not that easy. So, so getting our hands on as many uh, uh, credit uh, issues as we would like is not always easy, but we're, we're of course working 
hard uh, on that. Um, but I would also um, uh, just note that it is important to sort of get ready uh, for um, a turn in the cycle because the recession is likely to be shallow uh, in, in our opinion. Um, and it's, there's very few markers or uh, consistent with this recession turning into a financial crisis, for example. And the difference between a, a regular to mild recession in terms of the financial market reaction is very, very different to a more severe crisis-like uh, uh, recession. So, uh, yeah, we do think there could be a path to a new bull market beginning later on in the year. And so investors should be sort of getting ready uh, for what they might uh, invest in when it comes to that. Uh, um, I think good investments in the past at the very beginning of the cycle tend to be things like uh, global high yield debt, um, um, uh, as well as some of the uh, sort of lower quality segments of the equity market. In fact, that's the only time where sort of lower quality earnings tend to outperform. And so we've got a few things on our checklist. Um, we've got five conditions that we want to be met uh, that in the past have worked well. So valuations falling to historically cheap levels, around about 30th percentile were there in some markets, certainly not in the US. Um, a trough in leading indicators of the economy, we don't think we're there yet. Either earnings estimates downgraded to reflect the weak economic outlook. As Richard said, there has been earnings downgrades, particularly in, in the growth uh, sectors, but we do think they need to fall by more to be consistent. Um, fourthly, a capitulation investor positioning. That hasn't uh, uh, happened yet, particularly amongst retail investors. And the US retail investor is quite an important part of the market over there. They didn't sell out of equities at all. Uh, and fifthly, the end of the, the Fed's rate tightening uh, efforts. You know, since the 60s, we know that the market has never dropped ahead of the final rate hike. Uh, and if a recession is at hand by the time the last hike of the cycle is pushed through, the pause is, is typically uh, a bearish one, not a bullish one. But waiting for rate cuts usually means missing out on the early and largest stages of the equity market recovery. So once that final rate hike Comes, it's about looking for those uh, other other conditions, and there's usually a long gap right between the final hike and the first cut. That does give investors some time to reposition. It's an interesting point you mentioned about getting ready for a turn in the cycle. And Richard, I'm I'm wondering if that's something you're thinking of. If it's going to be a short um short, or short and shallow recession, are you already thinking you know what's going to rebound from this? Exactly. And I think Ed makes a very important point around, you know, we always talk about recession as, oh, my God, you know, this this is terrible. You, you can't invest in, in the in the stock market. There, there is a big difference between a, a a normal recession, a normal economic slowdown, and then finan a financial crisis. And, and the stock market reacts very differently, which is an you know, important point that you know Ed made. So, you know, we, I've been through many recessions before, many slowdowns before. And, you know, we, we can put that into our estimates. Um, you know, we cut growth numbers and margins and things like that. You know, that, that's very easy for us. To, and we've seen it 
many times before. What, what's much trickier to, to deal with are things like in March 2020 with COVID or a global financial crisis and systematic potential risks, then everyone just, just runs for cover. So, you know, if this is going to be a sort of a more shallow recession, then, you know, you start thinking about, you know, what, you know, an earnings or cash flow number would look like for a, for a stock this year, you know, what it could look like in a, in a recovery from that into, into next year and, and beyond. And then you think whether it's attractively valued today or expectations reasonable. And, you know, some of the more cyclical areas of, of, of the, the market, are, you know, particularly in, in semiconductors, are already, you know, seeing that and already shipping well below end market con- consumption, even if that consumption will, will ultimately weaken. Uh, and those will be sort of, you know, the, the first in and then first out uh, of, of that sort of process. While, you know, there'll be some classically kind of later cycle uh, type of companies or software companies that would be sort of later in that cycle will be later to see those, that weakening will be later to see those, those earnings cuts. And then obviously you've got to overlay that with what's a reasonable valuation to pay for these types of, uh, of stocks for growth rates that maybe are, are not as high as you thought they were going to be. And, and if you can kind of get those reasonable expectations combined with sort of fairly rational valuations, then you can start positioning yourself maybe in advance of those final sort of throws of, you know, macroeconomic sort of forecast getting a bit more sort of realistic about where we're, where we're heading. So, you know, as, as Ed said, we, we started already sort of stepping into some of those kind of high quality secular growth names that we felt had come down to reasonable expectations of valuations where you're you know, 100% confident that they're a very dominant franchise in a, in a good growth theme and you're very confident in that longer term future, but you just needed that reset. That reset happened in many cases for last year in, in the technology sector and in the early part of this year. Uh, we want to start positioning ourselves early, but you know, to, to Ed's point, not sort of going completely gung-ho here. Lots of food for thought yet there. Well, um, Ed and Richard, thank you very much for your comments and for speaking to FT Advisor today. And thank you for listening. We will be back next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.